This is Daniel Fagella, and you're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. We are talking about chatbots and conversational interfaces today. We've had plenty of episodes across industries, from retail to financial services and beyond, about the capabilities of conversational interface. But part of understanding that is understanding the challenges of these technologies. What is it that keeps us from getting to a conversational level of interaction with these machines? That's exactly what we dive into in this episode with Joe Bradley. He's the chief scientist at LivePerson. He was also the senior director for data and personalization science at Nike for two and a half years. Before that, he worked in AI and data at Amazon. Joe breaks down some of how LivePerson is approaching the conversational interface dynamic with their customers. They've got nearly 2,000 employees around the world, and they serve in kind of a call center and chatbot capability, uh, many of the largest companies that you know around the world. Big, big enterprise names are live person's clients, and they have the challenge of having to adopt chatbots to those different industries. Joe talks a little bit about some of the challenges to getting to a genuinely conversational level, and also what is possible today. So if you want a better understanding of what chatbots can and can't do realistically, and you want to understand the kind of hurdles we need to overcome in order to take everything to the next level, Joe gives a pretty frank perspective uh, from a rich background in both business and the hard science here. So I had a lot of fun with this episode. Hopefully you'll like it too. If you're interested in more NLP use cases and you want to learn more about everything from chatbots to search and discovery and everything NLP, uh, check out our free PDF brief called the Executive Guide to NLP. You can go to emerj.com slash NLP1 and uh, download that PDF brief. It's all about unlocking the business value of natural language processing. Not only will it cover some of the basic fundamental vocabulary around NLP, but also a quick breakdown of some of the best of use cases in that space. So if you're not already on the newsletter, go to emerj.com slash NLP1 and be sure to download that resource. Otherwise, without further ado, let's fly in. This is Joe Bradley, the chief scientist at LivePerson, here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Joe, I'm glad you could be here with us, and we're talking about something where uh, a domain where the bulk of your time is focused, which is conversational AI. Before we start getting into the nuts and bolts of the challenges and how they might be overcome to get to a better conversational experience, talk to us a bit about why this problem is so pressing and why businesses are are putting so much focus on conversational AI today. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. I think of this in two ways, uh, why this problem is important in two ways. Uh, first of all, you know, there's many, many billions of dollars being spent today in the contact center space. Uh, these are major cost functions for companies and huge, on the balance sheet, they look like huge liabilities for solving customer problems and helping customers use their services or deal with buying their goods. Yep. So many companies course, are very interested in, in automating aspects of this experience or, or more maybe more aptly said, improving efficiency for all the humans that are working in these operations as much as possible. Yep. I think that's yep. a little better problem statement. <laughs> and then secondly, there's a tremendous opportunity on the growth side here that I think we're just beginning to see, you know, namely, we are native language speaking animals, right? We have only learned to do shopping and commerce on the web you know, in the last 20 or 20 or 30 years. Yeah, yeah that's it. That's it. Uh, and that process, I think, in many ways has has kind of cooled off the process of commerce for us, right? It's made it a, a much more impersonal, transactionally based situation where you know less about the vendors and the people that are selling you things. And in many cases, that's fine, right? You don't you don't want or need to know that much about who sold you your toothbrush. That's it. But 
but for items and 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 areas where you're interested, right? Like where you know I want to go down the street, help find like yarn and and things for my wife who's really sure, into knitting. Sure. Right. You care about the business and you care about the relationship in different ways. And, and we see a real thirst for that in the way people are using conversations on our platform today. We see that uh, in the consumer mind, for sure. We think there's a tremendous opportunity there. But doing sales and commercial interaction at scale right, requires these same kind of automations and the same kind of conversational AI to really fuel it. Got it. And yeah, there's some interesting, you know, we're following a lot of the bigger e-commerce players, Amazon included, in terms of where conversations fitting in. I mean, Alexa is, of course, the obvious example, but you even have sort of different voice prompts that are being integrated to kind of walk people through the checkout flows and where conversation and commerce are going to connect and exactly how I think it's going to be, you know, a Cambrian explosion right now. And it's a really interesting space. It feels like there's kind of the warm and fuzzy element of it, which I haven't studied enough to have a firm opinion on, which is, hey, you know, people kind of want to feel like they're having a bit of a connection and a dialogue and maybe answer some questions or something and, and get more comfortable before a purchase. At the same time, if they know it's a machine, I'm not exactly sure if the warm and fuzzies are the point. So it, it sounds to me like the hypothesis on your side is there's some items where more context, more felt connection, even if they know it's a robot, might be valuable, might be useful. Is it also possible that it just facilitates more sales? In other words, when somebody's driving, if they can order whatever the thing is without taking their hands off the wheel, that would just be good business. I mean, what's the motive here, I guess? Yeah, of course, the use cases you're describing about like driving or just convenience are a huge driver here. Uh, I think what we're also getting at is that, you know, there are there are humans in the loop today, right, for brands like Amazon, you know, talking about order fulfillment, uh, you know, helping solve problems. Right. And in many cases for smaller businesses, helping sell set appointments and and like literally doing some of the work that that isn't automated well for them. And so being able to take the the most advantage of those people. Right. And I think where you really create the warmth is person to person. So being able to automate aspects of that pipeline. So those people are not spending their time looking up order status. Right. And and solving problems okay. that can be solved with machines. OK. Right. And putting them in a position where they're freer and it's easier for them to communicate with their customer base in a more meaningful way. That's sort of how some of this comes together. I see what you mean. So, yeah, yeah this totally makes sense. So in this sense, the, the literal augmentation and I, th in all seriousness, there will be both automation and augmentation in this space. Right. Some of it, some of American Express's call centers might end up being a little bit smaller in all seriousness. And you don't have to say that, but as a market research firm, I can, and there's no negative consequences for me. I would add one thing to that point, Go ahead. which is the automation and the augmentation are not fundamentally separate things. Yeah, in fact, yeah, oh, the, way to, the way to automation is in most cases very much through augmentation. I'm I'm with you, so I, I wouldn't disagree. I don't I don't see them as like a plus and a negative sign that they're you know you have to pick a path. You know I I really yeah, think yeah. that they're going to happen in tandem, and that that's just going to be the natural evolution. But you bring up a great point, which is okay if we can make it so that some of these higher touch items. I'm thinking, and Joe, you have better examples. I don't know if people I don't know what people buy high touch on the internet. I, everything for me is like Amazon. Put I'm just the laziest. But maybe furniture, or maybe you know jewelry, or maybe you know what are the kinds of things? Uh, I don't know insurance. I mean, what are the sorts of things where you see the person's job to really be much more high touch? And if we can get the practical little low hanging fruit stuff out of the way with automation, that person can be a better high touch relationship conduit. What are the domains where you see that dynamic? Because again, when I'm on Amazon, I care about none of that. It's like frozen right. green beans, peanut butter, but what are the industries? Yeah, I think you're right about some of 
those industries, right? I think you generally look up market for things like this. You know, some of our clients include, you know, companies working in in the bridal space, right? Okay, That's yep. one where a lot of conversation, a lot of high touch is obviously very important. Oh, yeah. uh, the jewelry space is huge. I think there are, you know, a lot of situations in travel as well and bookings where people, you know, even even though, you know, there are a lot of use cases in travel that are taken up by tools and and technology and automation, there's still a kind of like high touch VIP experience that that people care about quite a bit. But I would I would also like add one thing too, which is, you know, if you look at a lot of what you do on Amazon when you buy products where you don't think of them as these high touch experiences, you may not think, oh, I need conversations there. I think it's not so it's not so clean. Right. So if you look at a lot of the the advances that Amazon has made over the last 10 or 15 or 20 years, why are reviews so important for products, right? Reviews are so important for products because you're getting to hear about the utility of the product and and the value of the product in a person's own words. Yeah, yeah. Right, and ultimately, you know, and then look at all the question and answer, you know, UX that's come up on Amazon about like, well, what are the most frequently asked questions about this product and what are the most frequent answers, right? All of that is, you know, sort of scaffolding or the beginnings of or a nascent kind of conversational experience around the shopping. It's organized for you in a web UX, Yep. I mean, if you really if, if you take that as to where some of these web experiences are going, I think, you know, we want to be able to ask specific questions like, hey, is this really waterproof? I can't tell from the detail page and yeah. get a specific answer that, that we believe and that we trust. Right. And, yeah. and that those those things are critical. Yeah. OK, cool, cool. So I, I like that you're, again, drawing the continuum here. You know, it's not just, OK, for bridal, we need context for peanut butter. We don't maybe for peanut butter. Right. We don't in all seriousness. But but there, there's somewhere in the middle where we actually do want to pull pull contextual information about the product, about the common questions, and that some of that is is that sort of back and forth that's that's somewhat natural. But I, I, I like the, I guess you clarified here that there's these domains where some of those low-hanging fruit, practical, simple data answers, if that stuff can be out of the way, and when a person's on the phone, they're handling things that only really a person can do, that would be more conducive to selling, you know, again, bridal jewelry, whatever these upmarket, I think is a nice rule of thumb that you use. So I appreciate your clarity there. I know we're going to get into a bit of the the nuts and bolts of making this stuff work. So, you know, speaking of Amazon, I mean, you know, your career has involved many tech companies, Amazon being one of them, uh, after your PhD, I think you were over there for a little bit. And now, you know, with live person for the last uh, three plus years. So you're familiar with how fast this stuff has developed. You're also familiar with why it's so hard. You know, off microphone, you made a great example uh, where you talked about a fission energy or something like a fusion energy. Well, you know, it's always uh, a couple years away. Oh, we're almost there. You know, we're almost there. Yeah. And it feels almost like conversation is the same. You know, five or six years ago when we were writing articles about this domain, just like self-driving cars, it was a kind of gargantuan overt kind of blooming optimism, but but it's harder than people think. Talk to us a little bit about what some of the challenges are of making that text-based back and forth conversation really work. Yeah. And I think, you know, on the way to that, I very much agree with the notion that there's probably a lot of snake oil or has been a lot of snake oil that's been put into the industry in this oh, yeah. area. And I think you can trace a lot of that to you know, to some of the startup booms that have gone on around conversational oh, AI going 100%, back to five, 10 years. A hundred percent. And it's it's very like advantageous and you can grow your business really quickly with an idea, like much quicker with an idea than you can with a product and, you know, in the way that some of the VC funding works these days. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and sales as well, right? I've, you know, listened to a number of, like I remember listening to a podcast on the way to Australia 
few years ago where where it was about conversational AI and there was there's literally no content, right? It was like a, it was almost like a mashup of buzzwords. The industry is kind of rife with it. And I think that's because some of the, you know, some of the truths about the way the situation works today are still hard truths, right? There's, yes. you know, if you go in and look at any uh, conversational AI platform, which you as a business can build on, and even if you look at some of the objects like the Alexa and the Google Homes and the and the items in our in our world today that are, you know, purporting to be conversational AI, and then you ask yourself a very simple question like, well, how how do these systems, you know, decide on, you know, how to structure the dialogue that they're having with you? How do they decide on, well, if, if you say this and I say that, forgetting about understanding for a minute, let's assume they had perfect understanding and you just say, you know, you just ask the question like, how do, how do they decide which steps in the conversation to, to take? The core answer to that question in every case is the same, right? These are still rule-based prescriptions. Right? Oh, so, yeah. so what's yeah. happening in one and, and and the UX for how to do this, of course, has has grown and changed over time and gotten better over time. But ultimately, you have an operator somewhere who's designing a conversation and who's you know trying to to build that structure, and they're trying to essentially build that structure in a very prescriptive way. That's yep. not the way that you and I have conversations, right? That's not the way that we talk. Like I don't I don't have a plan for our dialogue, and I'm trying to kind of work you through it, and vice versa. We let these things develop, and we react. And the systems aren't good at doing that today. Yeah. And and it, so so that's one whole branch of problems, right? The other branch of problems is actually even though everyone talks about natural language understanding as a solved art, actually in the academic community now they're finally starting to they're finally starting to be papers like the checklist paper came out a couple of years ago, talking about how it's not so solved as we thought, and maybe the tests we've been giving for natural language understanding were were too limited and too easy. And I think the same thing is true in industry. If you, you know, even though we feel like NLU is the easy part, uh, if you go and look and, and actually interrogate one of the, any of these conversational AI systems or many of these conversational AI systems that, that you see, you know, the businesses are trying to build on these chatbot platforms and you try and talk to it like you really talk to a human, not like you expect to have to talk to a bot, which is kind of search engine-y, you're going to be pretty pretty starkly disappointed. And when we look at, we do a lot of qualitative analysis of conversations on our platform and conversations on other platforms. And when we look at the breakdown points, still fully 40 to 60% of the breakdown is in natural language understanding. Like did, did the bot, you know, did the system, you know, actually correctly interpret what the user just said? So I think you got, you know, these, these two big domains of problems and, and, you know, question one is, well, I, I guess like actually question zero is, like, do you understand what sort of problems your conversational AI system actually has? And so the way you the way you build today, I think there are there's not a lot of good signal about what's wrong with your interaction, why it's breaking, and what the experience of that interaction is. Usually this stuff is the domain of an expert reading a bunch of transcripts and then trying to make smart choices about how to tune it. And this is the problem in the learning loop as well, right? So, so, you know, you go and talk about games like Go or chess and computers learn how to play these games really quickly, well, or, or really well. Um, those are tremendous advances, but ultimately the space of stuff you can do in Go and chess is vastly smaller yeah. than the space of things you could do in conversations. It's, it's a bounded. So, so yeah, yeah. it's very bounded and it's very bounded and it's very incremental and the rules of the game are very well known. None of that's true in conversations. So if you want to make progress in making smarter conversational AI, and if you want to 
you know, start to build systems that can self-learn in meaningful ways about how dialogue works, the first point you need to address really is what's going wrong and what's going right. And you need to make a coherent and actionable, you know, understanding of those things, which, which like isn't how the industry works at all today. Yeah. How does, so now I don't have enough context on quote unquote, you know, the, the industry broadly. I mean, I've talked to plenty of banks and plenty of startups and, you know, even folks from the bigger tech giants about conversation, but I, I don't know their ins and outs of how they diagnose their own sure. problems. You're talking about kind of the fact that really picking apart where is this thing failing isn't quite being done well, you know, from it a technical not, standpoint. It's yeah. not so simple. It's not so easy. What we're actually yeah. trying to do is we're trying to apply like web-based thinking to this problem because huh. when you go and optimize a web page, what do you do, right? You look at customer paths and you look at things like conversion rate, sure. right? Yeah, and then, you're, yeah, then yeah. you make yeah. a hypothesis about like, okay, I've got these pages on the way to conversion rate or on, on the way to conversion. And I think if I alter this, I'll start to see a move in this. Metric. Yeah, 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 yeah. How, how are you thinking about it differently? So if you try to apply that problem to a conversation, you say, well, I just had this like long conversation with a customer, it, you know, I know that in the end they didn't buy Right. And or in the end, like they, you know, they had a negative emotional reaction to this. Now, like, imagine I try to build a learning loop off that. Like, what am I trying to teach? Like, what about that conversation needs to change is not right. There isn't there isn't a great way to make that connection. Yeah. It's not simply just, okay button placement and flow. It's like, oh, well, we know they just need to go here next and then here next and here next. There's it sounds like there's a much more open ended number of things you have to diagnose. How do you handle that? Well, and I guess if I was going to like really play out the analogy, what I'd say is trying to build conversational AI is more like trying to build a web page that knows how to fix itself than it is trying to build a like trying to build a web page with an operator that knows all the experiments and all the changes they want to make in a checkout flow or something. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah. So you you when you have that human in the loop today that's like reading transcripts, trying stuff, and you're going to move the systems are going to move incrementally very slowly. Because the space of dialogue is vast and complicated and the choices consumers make and the things they can say are big and confusing, that as they try and self as they try and optimize, as the human tries to optimize that loop in the same way the human's pretty good at optimizing a website loop, not that that's easy, it's hard, trying to optimize this kind of loop manually, much more challenging. You need markers, you need a way, like you need a way to identify what's gone wrong with the conversations. And so what do you do, right? Essentially, you need a new set of metrics and you need a metric, you need a set of metrics that are human understandable and are actionable. And, you know, not to not to turn this into a sales pitch, but this is, of course, like I'm talking about this and I'm thinking about this because this is the work that yeah, we've undertaken the, at Live. The person. approach that you guys are taking there. Yeah, yeah. So, right. it's, so that's why a, we, yep. a separate system is listening to the conversation and trying to deduce and trying to understand what's going wrong and then offering advice and guidance to the human operator today on what they can change and where in the conversation things have gone wrong, how they should change it, and then helping you kind of aggregate all this up. And this is like kind of also like the other motivation for this is that it is oftentimes true that machine learning models or, or um, systems like that are really not very good at understanding where they've gone wrong. Right. So you can ask a model to predict something, but asking a model really how likely it is to be right tends to be a dicier question. You often want to put kind of an onlooker model or an onlooker system that can help decide that. I mean, this just I mean, in all frankness, this sounds outlandishly complicated simply because, like you said, conversations are so uh, insanely complicated unto themselves to have an ML system that can observe from the outside in some sense. Oh, 
you know, well, the reason this person got frustrated with you, machine, is because X, you know, X might be, well, you know, you gave them a couple product options, but not as many as they wanted. Or the number of kinds of feedback and reasons, it almost feels like a human who knows the space would have to tune in with some context and, and bigger sure. picture thinking. And and this this really feels really, really, really human. I'm having a hard time imagining where a machine from the outside could listen in and deduce these highly contextual, really hard to pin down items. Like where does ML actually help with that? Yeah, sure. It's a good question. And I think, uh, let me explain a little more. Sure, so, sure. I think the point is to put the humans in the right place and the human, the right place for the humans is actually what you just said. It's deciding on the categories of problems, right? And it's, it's identifying and describing those in a way that you can go and begin to get data that expresses or that shows those problems so that you can use that data to then train models that can go and look for them. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah, right. Makes sense. So, okay. so the idea is to make the problem the machine has to solve actually relatively simple. Like here's a bunch of examples of when, you know, these bots or these systems, you know, are not understanding the intent clearly enough or like appear to be, you know, asking for a correction erroneously or appear to be making a transfer that is inappropriate for the situation or appear to be caught in a loop with the customer, right? These are all things that you can start to describe like basic rules of thumb. Like if you're caught in a loop, what's going to happen? You're going to start to see the same steps being taken by the AI over and over again, right? So actually, it's a relatively simple one to go and catch. But you know, what doesn't catch it very well is that dialogue system that's trying to execute that problem. If it did, it wouldn't have done that. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So humans are, are going to have to do the the high context thinking about what are the categories of meta problems we're wrestling with here, and then be able to find or train machine uh, learning systems to detect those categories of problems, those those types of disjointed conversations, those types of errors that tend to to gunk up the works. And then that can be turned into data because now we can paint that across the 10,000 phone calls we had yesterday and we can get a sense of, okay, well, we just, we just defined this problem yesterday, but how many times has that actually been the crux of what's going down? Oh, there it is. Wow, would you look at that? This thing that we've conceptualized when we actually train a system on identifying it, now we know where to pinpoint our efforts. Is it something like this, Joe? Yeah, yeah. And to build on that for a second, like this is why humans in the loop also are so important, right? Not just as the as the sort of, you know, the, this, these architects of like, what are some of these failure modes, but also in the generation of the data that helps to train the models in the first place, or I guess in the second place. So uh, let, let's say I go and generate these failure modes like, you know, model caught in circles, model does a bad transfer, model, you know, doesn't understand very well, yada, yada, yada. Now I've got to go and generate a bunch of data that, that is sort of some, some kind of ground truth for this. And you can go and pay a bunch of annotators to do that and you'll pay a lot of money and they'll do it very slowly and they hopefully will do it well if you're really good at managing annotators. There's a lot of ifs there and a lot of challenges there. And that's, a, that's another reason the field generally has gone more slowly than anybody would have liked is generating this data is difficult and expensive. Huh. But brands that are working in a customer service capacity today or in, a, or in a sales center capacity today with humans having conversational interactions with customers actually are in a, in a very strong position to generate data like this. Like they have the raw materials and the raw materials are those agents who are good at having those conversations with those customers. So one of the pieces of this puzzle is to, I think, the, and I think this is why so many of the startups failed, is they don't have access 
to a, a really good way to create this loop, right? The business model for a startup and conversational AI is show up, you know, maybe get some data from you if we're lucky, right? And then, and then I'm going to turn on a magic black box machine that's going to kind of work like AlphaGo and learn how to have all these conversations. And I'm going to go put it in your contact center and boom, now you don't need people anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and that misses the whole point. The whole point is like, hey, I, 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 if I want to start to learn to get better, I've got to first know what's going wrong. I've got to have categorization for that. And then secondly, I've got to go and generate a whole bunch of data that can teach the machine how to find that. And the very people that generate that are the people that are working, talking to my customers every day. I've got to build that yeah. into their operational cycle. Got it, got it. Yeah, completely makes sense. I mean, that there's nothing about this that feels incoherent. And and in fact, I mean, I'd be somewhat shocked if nobody else ever had the darn idea. But I, I get where, where you're where you're saying is that okay, instead of going with uh, and there's tons of firms here, some of whom we've you know worked with at Emerge for various and sundry things. You know, the Appins and the iMerits and the uh, Figure Eights and whoever else that that kind of do annotation at some level of scale. What you're saying is well. If you build, an, and frankly, this is easier said than done, but if you build an interface whereby Mr. or Mrs. Call Center or Chat Center person can, you know, after ending an in interaction, label it in a certain way or annotate things in a certain way or whatever the case may be as part of their in front of their face workflow, then we can take the people that actually understand the problems and make sure that they're the ones actually layering this in. So instead of having totally untrained folks who, you know, they could detect anger, maybe they could detect a specific keywords, they could detect that it's about a refund, but they they might not know the nuance of somebody who wants this kind of furniture versus this kind of furniture, or somebody that wants this kind of jewelry versus this kind of, or whatever the specific problems are. It sounds like the challenge here is we've got to be very deliberate about setting up our experiments and determining our, for lack of better terms, the new features we want to start to train, because if we're going to start to integrate this into our chat center workflows, we're now going to be, you know, I don't want to say burdening, but we're, we're you know, we're going to be asking for some feedback from a lot of people. And, and those better be the damn well best tests that we think are going to get us the best results, because it's a lot of effort we're now putting, you know, on the rest of our team to help make this learning loop happen. How do you square that circle? How do you pick the yeah. right things and then actually integrate that feedback into the workflow? I think there's a lot to talk about in what you just said. So let me try and like pull some of it apart. So first of all, I think the annotation business model like doesn't support this use case particularly well. And that's part of why I think you don't see it being used that often that effectively. It, it, you know, you don't need 10 million conversations or, or a million conversations to be annotated for some of these models. You need a, a much smaller amount. It's actually a much more tractable, tractable problem, which is sort of bad for getting a company like a figure eight or an app enter or, or whatever to like, it doesn't create the right economic incentive for them. Yep. Uh, I think the second problem is the integration, you know, with, the existing systems and the existing conversations and the conversational data, right? There's a tremendous amount of privacy and regulatory issues with moving that data around and, and accessing that data and using it that can slow things down, right? So try and get try and get conversational data out of a bank that may contain a consumer's credit card number by accidental chance and all of a sudden, right, regulations are are, are in the mix that are gonna make that take five years or or at least one. So so I think you're right. I don't think the idea is fundamentally you know, that hard to come up with. I think like most things, like like actually building the hard. idea and actually it's making hard. it work yeah. is the hard part. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're and if you're a startup, right, all of those problems that I just described are are essentially intractable problems for you, right? Or or could be very intractable problems for you. Like how do I make sure, you know, like I actually don't if I'm a startup, I actually don't want to touch your data because your data could kill me. Right. It could it could create a, you know, legal problems that I could control or, or contain. And I may not be able to sign a contract that's, 
you know, big enough with a big enough indemnity clause for you that that makes you feel comfortable doing this. Yeah. So sure. I think okay. I, I think the issue is like I think primary issue one is like just find somewhere in some technology where you can create this loop. Right. And and, yeah. and this is the re one of the reasons I am at work for this company. And I think this company is so interesting is it's one of the few companies that's sitting in a position where we actually can articulate this loop, right? Because the data is flowing through the platform. Yep. The agents yep. themselves are on the platform today. And so the experimental cost is actually relatively low. Like if you look at what it's going to cost you, what you what you might benefit from, you know, turning on another conversational use case for your chatbot that saves you 3% of your traffic as a large business, you might save, you know, 10, 20, 50 million dollars for something like that. Right. And and then are, are, is it really worth it for you to spend, you know, an extra twenty five thousand dollars with a couple of like, you know, a little bit of a drop in your agent efficiency to go and get that? Of course it is. Right. It's a matter of seeing the ROI properly. And then, of course, like convincing the operators to invest in this. Yeah. And there are, there, yeah. there are some real problems there, too. Sorry. Of but just, just to say one one yeah. last point about it is there's a serious problem around conflict of interest. Right. If I run a contact center and I have this operation, like my yeah. influence is proportional to the size of my operation. And so if I start doing things that limit the size of that operation, I have to be a really forward thinking, low, low ego business leader to, to pull that off. This is, and not yeah. everybody is. So this is part of the reason we have a gain share model that we work with a lot where it's like, hey, give us the contact center, let us go take it. We'll go run that side of the business for you and we'll save money on the margin on our side by making the operations more efficient because then the incentives are aligned a little better. Yeah, man. I mean, yeah, the the incentive thing is is really its own ball of wax, but it's really important to bring up because it's similar for a lot of different kinds of AI applications, right? The egos and the uh, the influence kind of internally are are not necessarily always aligned with what we might presume that the the grand business outcomes are, right? Because they're run by individual people. You know, there's people in the contact center who don't want to lose their job or they don't want to change their job. That right? They they've been doing the same thing for five years and they frankly don't want to change. Th these things all all occur. And, you know, while I can't, I think there's pros and cons to working with with smaller startups, but I think a point that's very salient here is that in order to collect the kind of data that you're talking about, clearly you already have to be in front of a lot of the contact center folks. And if you're already that interface and that interface can do the collecting, well, this is going to shorten the time cycle, right? If a startup gives you an extra additional software pop-up that happens at the end of every call that you take inside of some other call center software, chat software, that's obnoxious. Right. But if it becomes part of the flow of what you're already, where you already are, then hypothetically, you can capture it as, as it goes around. And I would say, you know, from, from an, an objective outside perspective, that certainly would be a advantageous position for you guys to be able to already be already have a chance to be in that loop. Now, how do you align incentives? How do you get frontline people to actually start adopting this stuff? How do you uh, pick the right features and experiments that are going to make it worth people's while so that everybody can can see some results here? Those are other tactical questions. But being able to even sit in a spot where you can collect it at all from the people who know the data, that's a sincere advantage there. So that sounds like a, a good place to be for you guys. That's right. That's that's one of our bets. And we got a few, but that's a big one. And, and and there aren't, I think there really just aren't a lot of companies out there that are sitting in that spot and are committed to innovation and committed to the the cost and the time you have to spend, the money and the time you have to spend in order to do it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it'll, it'll be interesting to see where things head off. I mean, we're, we're certainly going to be following this space. I'm sure we'll follow what, what you're up to there. But so many different industries 
operate so differently in terms of what their problems are. You know, it'll be curious to see how much transferability yeah. there are. You know, we, we see a bunch of companies that are like, oh, when we solve anti-money laundering for this one branch of HSBC, why then? We'll just scale it to everybody else. And it's oh, like, yeah, yeah. actually, you super effing don't ever do that, ever. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, in, in the call centers, how much of this will be the same way I, or, or the, the, the contact yeah. centers? It'll be curious to see, but you guys at least have a horse in the race, and I think it's cool to get an understanding of your philosophy. I know we're up on time, but Joe, I really do appreciate you going into outlining the problems and also talking a little bit about your stab at how this stuff will get solved. So thank you so much for being able to break down some of your expertise today. Thanks for having me on, Dan. Really appreciated the conversation. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. A big thank you to Joe for joining us, and thank you to you, our listener, for tuning in all the way through to the end of this episode. If you're not already following us on social, be sure to do so. You can find us at at E-M-E-R-J on Twitter or Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research on LinkedIn or on Facebook. It's been great to have so many more folks following us in our LinkedIn conversations over the last nine months or so, and we'd love to have you as part of that conversation too. So appreciate you as a listener. Look forward to catching you in the next episode here on the AI and Business Podcast.